Welcome to That One Conversation, the podcast where we talk about those one conversations that have formed us into the person we are today. You know, the conversation that you never asked for, but it was given to you anyway. It was one of those conversations that changed you to your core. And in doing so, it's created a ripple effect of positive change from that one conversation. I'm Laurie Rowe, the host of this podcast. And throughout my life, I've had several of those one conversations. And as I reshare them with other people, I've always been a bit surprised at how it changes their life too. And so it's because of that, that I'm on a mission. My mission is to create connection, community, and change through the curation and cultivation of conversation. Join me, my guests, as we share about those life-changing conversations because these conversations might just change your life too. Welcome back to that one conversation. Before I introduce you to today's guest, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has reached out to me about my most recent episode, How Are You Really? with Lauren Rogers. This was a conversation that really resonated with many. And so if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, I think it's worth your time. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Jesse Eubanks. He leads an incredible nonprofit organization in Louisville, Kentucky, and he's also an Enneagram coach and a podcast host. We really dive into the importance of self-awareness, why we have to be honest with ourselves about what's working and what isn't, and we also get to hear from Jesse about the results of the hard inner work he did and how it has impacted those all around him. And yes, it came from that one conversation. Listen, if this episode resonates with you the way that it has with me, shoot me a message. And don't forget to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, here we go. Jesse, I am so glad to have you today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to talk about that one conversation that changed your life. And many of us have more than one conversation, but we're going to focus in on that one conversation that you can really pinpoint and say, this is the one that was such a game changer for me. And so before we dig into that one conversation, tell our audience who you are, where you are, what you do, and just give us a high level overview of Jesse Eubanks. So I live in Louisville, Kentucky, born and raised here, but moved away. I ended up coming back here and making a life here. So I, I met my wife. She's an occupational therapist in the public school system, and we've got a couple of kiddos. And I lead an, organ an organization called Love Thy Neighborhood. And the work that we do, we say, on the one hand, one aspect of our work is like we're like the Peace Corps with Bibles. So we recruit young adults from all over the world to make an impact. And then on the other side, we do what we refer to as just sort of discipleship content. So we have a podcast. So that's the Love That Neighborhood podcast. We've got the Enneacast, which explores the Enneagram. And then uh, we do just a variety of workshops and tools to help people have healthier, more life-giving relationships. Well, I would love for you now to set up this conversation for us. Tell us about that one conversation that impacted your life. Tell us about where you were, what age you were, what was going on in your life. Just really give us like the, a backdrop of what was happening in Jesse's life when this conversation happened. And then tell us about the conversation. 
Yeah. So some lead up uh, to that conversation. Um, I was uh, raised in in terms of a church community in, in a white evangelical culture in the 90s in which a lot of emphasis put on morality and on Christ's sacrifice for us. Long story short is that I ended up hearing this sermon my senior year of high school. And in the course of that sermon, one of the things that was said was there are over 2,000 passages of scripture about God's concern for the poor. And I go back and I look at my Bible and I'm like, did somebody steal my Bible and add these verses? Where did these verses come from? I've never noticed them before because no one in my tradition ever talked about those things. So out of that, I ended up uh, moving out to Oakland, California, where I did urban ministry for a year. So to go from Louisville, Kentucky, all the way out to Oakland, California was quite a transition. That led to just a series of years where I lived in Oakland for a while, I lived in Philadelphia for a while. I ended up taking African-American history. I ended up studying the Holocaust, really trying to expose myself to these, these realities that were outside of my upbringing and my experience. So fast forward, I had been touring as a musician. I meet my wife. We fall in love. And one of the very first conversations we have is about both of our love for the city and about feeling called to go into the city to love neighbors and to be a part of what's happening in the city. And then we get married and we move into a low-income neighborhood here in Louisville called Shelby Park. We're living on a block in which we're seeing prostitution, there are drug deals, there's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of hardship. At the exact same time, our church went from this tiny little church plant, you know, where the first time I went, there were 25 of us. And now all of a sudden, you know, there's there's a couple thousand of us and this church is exploding. So all this is happening in my neighborhood, my church, and then I'm working at a homeless shelter at the same time. As I'm pouring myself out over and over and over again in all of these arenas, I am finding myself growing in uh, bitterness and in frustration because things are not going according to plan. That is ultimately what leads up to the moment that I meet with these men and have this conversation that I needed to have. So what age were you at that point? Yeah, so this would have been about a decade ago. So I'm 43, so it would have been my early 30s. When you say you were bitter, was there a person that you were bitter towards or was it just a spirit of bitterness. Oh no, there was a person I was bitter toward. Uh, his name was God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was I was really bitter. Yeah, towards God because there was this real sense of look at all of these people I, I grew up with who have gone on to live very comfortable lives, chasing all of their dreams. You know, from my perspective at the time, you know, very few sacrifices made. Look at me, I'm throwing myself down. I'm working at a homeless shelter. I'm living in this low income community and. Over and over again, things are just not going according to the plans or the timetable that I mm. thought were best. And really what was happening is my idealism was just being crushed on the rocks of reality. And I just had no means by which to cope with that. The really dangerous part of that moment, though, for me was I had no idea that I actually felt that way. I, I was so sort of addicted to you just do the next thing. You just do what's right and you do the next thing that I had just buried so much of that anger and pain that I was unwilling to even acknowledge it. I don't know that I could have acknowledged it. And so it led to this very surprising moment as, as I showed up for this event at my church. 
where I ended up talking with these guys. So tell us about what happened. You go to an event at your church. My church at the time did this thing where essentially small groups of people, you know, might be five or six folks in each group. You know, typically it was all men in this group and all women in this group. And the the basic principle was identify something in your life in which an area in which you feel stuck or an area in which you are carrying unhealed shame and you just can't let it go. The idea was for us to realize we don't have to be ashamed about these things, that it's okay to be where we are and that we can still be accepted. We can still be loved. Uh, of course, the irony is like every other guy, as they begin to share, you know, I'm like blowing holes in them. I'm just like, you know, this guy is like, I, I can't, I can't stop yelling at my wife. And I'm just like, well, stop being a jerk. And then you want to be yelling at your wife, you know, and then, you know, somebody else is like, I just keep feeling insecure at work. And I'm like, well, deal with your insecurity and then you won't feel insecure anymore. Go get some counseling or something. So we're going around. I'm doing the thing that I think a lot of us do as people. We see other people's stuff and we just think we know all their solutions. And so, so I'm heaping judgment on all these guys. And then it circles around to me and I am instantly lost. You know, they're asking me questions. What's going on and how are you feeling and what's the thing? And and I can't find language. I'm I'm really fumbling around in the dark, trying to figure out kind of what to hold on to. But as the conversation continues and it goes, what I'm beginning to realize is I'm getting more animated. I'm getting louder. I'm getting more verbose. I'm getting more emotive. And I began just unloading. I started talking about all my disappointments, you know, and all the struggles that we're having. And, you know, the ministry I'm a part of is on the verge of bankruptcy and my neighbors keep moving away and I can't build these relationships. And at the end of it all, I'm doing all of this because I'm supposed to be doing it because God told me I'm supposed to be doing this. Then there's this moment where I find myself and I'm screaming and that's why I'm angry at God. And I could feel in the room, you know, there's those moments when it's like an out-of-body experience, like you you watch yourself from the outside, but you could also see all of the other faces of the room just kind of go, whoa, that was bigger than I realized we were going to get today. And I could just sort of feel the folks in the room not recoil in sort of like a, oh, you're intimidating me way, and just sort of like a bomb went off, like, you know, you back up when a bomb goes off. And that moment was surreal for me. I mean, even when I think about it now, I, I sort of remember the embodiment of that experience, you know, to feel that amount of, of anger and disappointment, but also authenticity coming out of my mouth. Anne Lamott says, sometimes anger is how the truth escapes jail. And I feel like that's what was happening in that moment. Finally allowing myself, I'm, I'm angry and I'm going to give voice to that. And that was a, it was a big, a big moment for me. You were basically a prisoner in your own body. Yeah. To further illustrate that because you weren't able to, you hadn't been able to express it before. And there was something sacred about that moment where suddenly it came out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, I think that not only was there a sense in which I was a prisoner because I was unwilling to acknowledge it, but the people around me were also in some ways captive to my unacknowledged state as well. You know, my, my, my wife was nervous to be around me because I had, it was grumpy and had this temper. My kids were nervous to be around me because I was always frustrated and flustered. My coworkers were frustrated. You know, there was a sense in which I'm operating from this place of, you know, like very low self-awareness. 
Yeah, and that moment was the moment in which it was like, well, cat's out of the bag. Yeah. <laughs> Guess we got to address this. And so what happened then? What was your progression? Because obviously, 10 years later, you're able to talk about it. I'm assuming that this propelled you to change. Yeah. The immediate aftermath was this, that, that the the other men in the group leaned in and had a variety of responses, some of which, I'll be honest, some of them were very encouraging and affirming, and some of them were not so encouraging and affirming. I think there were some people that were not sure what to do with what I had just shared. But I think that the the big one for me is this. There was, there was one friend in the group who uh, I had known for a very long time, and we both tended to stay a little more on the social level. And in the decades since, both of us have gone through a lot of things as life as life does. In the immediate aftermath of that, not only did he lean in, but he stayed by my side in a way that prohibited shame from crippling me. Um, and he engaged with me in a way where he was able to, I'm going to say some things and you may not like everything I say, but it also has no bearing on the fact that you're my friend and I care about you and I love you. And I think that sort of having, you know, I don't know what term, like a wingman in that scenario, somebody that was willing to like, let me lose my stuff and that they could handle it and they wouldn't abandon me as a result of it, kept shame at bay. But the other thing it did, it gave me just enough curiosity and courage to go, I, I want to go f- figure out what's under this. Where's this coming from? What's driving this? And so ultimately it became a search for self-clarity, but it became a search for self-clarity, not hopefully, not for this sort of narcissistic reason, but because I wanted better relationships. I, I wanted to be close to my wife. I wanted to be close to my kids. I wanted to be close to God, but that required me going and doing some work. And so that led to a lot of work over the last decade. I want to stop for just a moment and talk about the concept of self-awareness. You mentioned that you grew up in the church. You grew up, I'm guessing, pretty traditional, white, middle-class to upper-class, evangelical, Southern community. Just in the South in general, self-awareness is not super warmly welcomed, I think. Yeah. At least in the 80s and 90s and maybe the 2000s. You know, I think today it may be different because we're all a new uh, version of ourselves and we're pouring into the next generation. I think there is more self-awareness. Something that Ian has said to me, why self-awareness and self-improvement is a responsibility, dot, dot, dot. It's this idea that we are never done. You know, until the day that heart stops beating and we're, our body is, is absent of our spirit, we're never done. And so we have this responsibility to constantly be improving, to become more self-aware, to be making um, strides to be the best version of ourselves. And that's definitely not something that I was taught growing up, also in conservative evangelicalism. What a gift that you, in your early 30s, were given the shakeup, the awakening, that self-improvement, self, self-awareness self leads to self-improvement. I don't know why the church, I say the church, like we're... Like it's one thing, but I, I get what you're right, saying. Right, right, right. But yeah. I don't know why there would have been a teaching or even an inference that, that we couldn't be better, that we couldn't be more aware, that we have to live in this like glass box and everything has to just be perfect because I was a pastor's daughter. And so, and that one conversation for me was when a friend in college said I was the fakest person he'd ever met. Mm. 
there was a lot of truth to that because I had grown accustomed to just giving people what they expected, right? Because that's kind of what you do. And I was really, really good at it. And so that idea that I was fake just crushed me because at that point in my life, I thought I would be in ministry full time. And how could a fake person be in ministry? And so here you are, you know, like serving the the poorest of the poor and you're giving your entire life. And I'm sure that you weren't living a lucrative, you know, financial lifestyle. And of course you were angry with God. Like, of course it wasn't going the way you expected it to go. What a gift that these men, you know, that the conversation was even offered, that you were invited into the conversation. And then what a gift that, that really God gave you that nudging to vomit out what was going on. Yeah. And I think, though, you see that so often, right? You look at the Psalms and like, I mean, David is like losing it. So often we talk about that he's a man after God's own heart. And I think that we try to make it like it's moral character. And I'm like, David, David is not not so moral. You know, I think a lot of more of that has to do with his longing for connection and his authenticity. And and I think that that reflects the heart of God. And And I do. I look at that moment 10 years ago of me losing it. And I think there are times where we just have to be given evidence that is undeniable because we are so capable of reframing and looking at things with a really skewed lens. And sometimes things have to happen in our lives where it's like, you know, it's just out there and it's like, well, we're going to have to, we're going to have to deal with this. And so, so I was, I was very grateful that those men were, were capable and willing to hold my story. Hmm. Towards the end of the conversation of our conversation today, I want to come back and ask you a question if somebody else is in a situation where they feel that shame, that anger towards God, what would you say to them? But I want to wait because okay. I want to have the rest of our conversation. And then I want to circle back yeah. and ask that question after we've talked about the kind of like the fruits, if you will, yeah. of that moment in your life. So let's transition to what I call the paying it forward aspect of this conversation. And tell us about what was that journey like then for you? in your own personal pursuit of self-awareness in really what I would assume was a lot of healing, a lot of digging in and asking, why do I feel this way? So tell us about that journey and then we'll talk about the effects of that journey. Yeah. The healing did come eventually, but rarely does it come quickly. You know, usually for me, the immediate aftermath was some degree of embarrassment, sobriety, and grief. And then I think that sort of out of that process, then some healing began to happen. But the the immediate implications were I had to kind of, I had to take stock of what I had done. You know, I had to take stock of like, oh, I'm, I've been treating my wife this way. Oh, I've been treating my kids this way. Oh, I've been holding God hostage. Oh, I've been, you know, talking down to people and being condescending and thinking that I know best. And I've been emotionally erratic and have not been willing to, you know, own that. So for my wife and I, we actually ended up going to see a guy named Dr. Rich Plass. Rich, we always said was like Sigmund Freud and C.S. Lewis, like wrapped into one. Like he was just this like sage of a man. And he was a, he's just a man that has suffered a lot in life. And he's sat with people through their suffering. And so for three years, every single week, my wife and I would go and we would sit with Rich you know, there's some therapists and counselors, they just listen to you and they just give you a few things to think about. 
Rich, Rich like got in the ring with us. So like, if I'm, if I was kind of going full throttle, Rich was like, all right, well, let's, let's do it then. In the course of that journey, Rich utilized the Enneagram in order to be able to help my wife and I hold a mirror up to ourselves and to see what are these things that are going on. That led to, even even exploring the Enneagram led to a, a quick series of decisions. We moved out of our neighborhood. Um, you know, my wife grew up, uh, she was only child of an alcoholic father living in a neighborhood in which we would find people who were intoxicated on our front porch. Sure. That's a pretty wow. triggering, yeah. that's a triggering situation. Yeah. Uh, one of our children had special needs. We were literally living two doors down from people that were on the sex offenders registry. And so we're going, okay, all of these things are just merging in a way that are, I can't give all day at the shelter and cause my wife to suffer the way that she is and, 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 and. And so we had to, we had to make some choices and those were really hard because, you know, I told you the very first thing that my wife and I fell in love over was we're going to go into the city and we're going to be a part of what's happening in, in the city that was a dream that we had to grieve and let go of and say, we can give more if we just become a little more reasonable and realistic about our limitations. Between working with uh, Rich Plass, between moving, and between my wife and I really hunkering down, eventually things got better, but they got worse before they got better. Because when the truth comes out, it's a lot, it's a lot of stuff to deal with. It's also the only way forward. Otherwise, we, we just stay stuck. So yeah, so I dug into the Enneagram and for me, it was such a profound experience and gave me a lot of empathy to a lot more, I should say a lot more empathy for my wife. You know, confession, I can struggle with empathy at times. It's not first nature for me. I tend to be a tough it out kind of personality. And the Enneagram gave me a means by which I could look at my wife and go, you know, she experiences the world just different than I do. And I don't need to cast and throw all my stuff onto her. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so then able to take the Enneagram and the work that we, you know, do with that and carry it over into not just my, my marriage, but my friendships, our ministry work. And I've ended up dedicating a fair portion of my life to trying to help people have healthier, better relationships. So for those that are listening today that maybe don't know what the Enneagram is, Mm -hmm. Tell us your explanation of what the Enneagram is. A.J. Sherrill calls it a human tool. It's not a Christian tool. It's not a spiritual tool necessarily. It's just a human tool that allows us to begin to map some of the reoccurring and common traits in humanity in the way that we perceive the world, in the way that we process the world, and in the way that we present to the world. And so it's really a tool to help people understand their personality and understand their relational style and how they interact with this world that we're all living in. We were just chatting before we got on that on the Enneagram, we're both threes. And it's funny that you said that you recently realized that you were a three or maybe recently shared that you were a three and you thought you were a four. And for those that are not familiar with the Enneagram, there is a, a pretty big difference between a three and a four. And hearing you talk about when you were in high school and you heard the pastor talk about 2000 scriptures talking about um, the poor. And then you so quickly went into like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out mode. My first thought was he's totally a three. Like, you know, like, that, uh -huh. <laughs> like that's uh -huh. such a three thing to do to go out and just conquer the world. But it's also very much a three thing to do to hide behind your shame, your emotion, and to continually kind of give people 
the perception that everything is great. And it's so easy as a three, when you know that you've been called to do something, or you know that this is a part of your life purpose, which for you is, you know, working with the poor, it's so easy to hide behind that and to make that the idol so that people see the performance side of what you're doing. Oh, he's living with the poor. He's working with the poor. He's healing the poor. You know, all of those amazing accolades that people are giving you because you're, you're doing that. And yet at the same time, not being real and honest with yourself and with those closest to you about how you really felt and what was really going on. Talking about the ripple effect, you've talked a little bit about how you and your wife went into really intense counseling. I'm going to guess that was your number one priority was focusing on your marriage um, or maybe your relationship with God and then your marriage and then your children and those like in your immediate family. Yeah. And then you've developed a podcast about the Enneagram and tell us about the Love Thy Neighbor organization that you work with. And then I want to shift over to talking about your book. That's also really a result of that conversation. So first of all, let me say this about on the three stuff too, is that in um that threes, we're, we're more comfortable doing our emotions than feeling our emotions. And and that's For sure. very much at play in my story is that things come up and I'm like, well, let's do something about it, you know, instead of let's sit in it and feel it. Right. But also what's confusing is my therapist always says, uh, you're the most emotionally insightful male client that I have. And I'm like, well, you're not helping my four versus three energy here. So yeah, so in 2014, I launched uh, Love That Neighborhood. I launched it because, you know, as I'd said, when I was young, I had moved out to Oakland, California to do a gap year program. And it really fundamentally changed my values. You know, I experienced life different because of that year. Uh, I married the person I did because of that year. I live where I live because of that year. I spend my money the way I do. It radically changed everything for me. So I'd been leading a gap year program when I was at the homeless shelter. And in 2014, I was given the opportunity to launch uh, a version of the program that would be independent. And we would not just help people struggling with homelessness, but we would help lots and lots of different causes around the city. We bring in young adults from all over the world and they do, they go around and they serve full time with uh, understaffed nonprofits in the city. Um, just providing full-time reinforcements. They live in community with one another. And then we do a variety of whole life discipleship with them to try to help them follow in the life and the lifestyle of Jesus. So it, it launched out of that. And I, I have a lot of passion for young adults because a lot of my wounds, a lot of my forced stuff comes from, I came from a very broken family as a kid. And me moving from Kentucky to California on the one level was I wanted to go make a difference. On the other level, it was, I got to get the heck out of here. I wanted to create a program for young adults that would make a difference in the world, but also fundamentally that we could teach them how to do relationships well in their 20s. Because all of us that are older know if I had learned to do relationships better when I was in my 20s, my 30s would have been better, my 40s would have been better, my 50s would have been better. And if we can teach people when they're still young, this is what relational vibrancy looks like. This is what it looks like to build friendships. This is what it looks like to commit yourself to other people. Then our future leaders are going to be healthier than we've been. So that's where Love That Neighborhood came from. And then as time went on, we launched the Love That Neighborhood podcast because we just wanted to tell good stories, good true stories, documentaries about cool things happening around the city. And 
so uh, so we did that. Then we added the Enneacast, and uh, and now we do workshops and books and you know all kinds of stuff. And at the end of the day, we want to make a difference in the lives of the poor. We want to help shape the lives of young adults. We want to help people navigate modern culture, and we want to help people build better relationships. Jesse, I want to mention that there's another conversation that you had that you haven't really acknowledged, and that is, or maybe we've danced around it, this, the sermon that you heard about the 2000 scriptures, because the impact that that sermon had on you, that that really changed your life too. I mean, that's what caused you to develop the heart that you have for the poor. I mean, it's really how you ended up doing what you do now in the marriage that you're in now uh, with all the values that you just outlined and even going to California and how that gap year fundamentally changed you. So there's really kind of two conversations here that really, really changed your life. Would you agree with that? It's a turning point for me, for sure. It is. Yeah. And sometimes I think that when we hear speakers, you know, pastors, speakers, podcasters these days, you know, anybody, and they say something, it feels like they're saying it more to like the masses or to like everybody, but yet it can sometimes be very personal. I think acknowledging how God does speak through those leaders, those speakers directly into our hearts. I mean, that sermon, I don't know who the pastor was, but I mean, for all we know, he was just doing a sermon, right? On like 2000 scriptures in the Bible that talk about the poor. And yet as a young man, that so deeply impacted you. And I think that's just an incredible aspect of, of your story as well. So I have a copy of your book, like any good Enneagram book. I always go to the three section first because I mean, that's clearly the only part that I'm concerned about. (laughs) The name of the book, and now that I hear a little bit more about what you do and, and really the core value that leads you, I understand the name of the book so much better. But the name of the book is How We Relate, Understanding God, Yourself, and Others Through the Enneagram. What I love about the work that you are doing right now and so deliberately pouring into quote unquote, young people, (laughs) which, you know, that age or that generation continues to change. So like it's, you know, that's the 20 year olds, though, I guess, is who you're really referring to. And so how we relate and how we connect and how we how we understand each other, that is so critical for our culture right now in this post pandemic era in which our children, yours and mine, our children were deprived of the opportunity to be in school and to truly develop and foster relationships at such a critical age. I don't know if you're familiar with David Thomas and Sissy Goff. They're in Nashville with Daystar Christian Ministries, and they have a podcast about raising emotionally healthy children. And they're seeing that children today, teenagers and children alike, are about 18 to 24 months behind in their social and emotional development from where the same age would have been in 2019 as a result of the pandemic. And that's that's especially would be scary because, you know, our, I've been working now with young adults since 2005 and the start line has continuously moved back yeah, every few years sure. already. So the pandemic has really, I mean, really set right. people back right. for sure. So, I mean, all the more reason that this work that you're doing is so critical and all I can think is, how can it be duplicatable? Because every community needs what you're what you're doing. Okay, let's dig into the book a little bit. I wanted to tell you what I love about this book. So for those that have never read a book about the Enneagram, most Enneagram authors will do like an introductory chapter 
and a conclusion chapter. And then all the other chapters are based on the one singular number. And there's nine numbers on the Enneagram. So that's roughly 11 chapters. Am I right about how that works? Yeah. There's a few things here that I really, really loved. And I wanted to let you know about that um, as both feedback, but also because I think it's a unique book. First of all, you have really clever graphics. Every chapter, Jesse talks about what your true self in a healthy manner is going to look like. So for example, a three, which, you know, Jesse and I are both, um, our true self is that we're efficient, we're self-assured, we're adaptable, we enjoy motivating others, we're competent, successful, and energetic. And those are all words that certainly describe me and I'm sure they describe you too. We also have this false self. And this is what I really love because I actually went through every single number and read all the false selves. So for the three, and this is where we as threes get embarrassed, we're self-conscious about our image, we're addicted to adoration, manipulative and calculating, we're chameleon-like in our personality, we can be internally vacant, which you kind of mentioned, our relationships serve success, they can, and we're superficial. And I mean, that completely goes back to the fact that I was called the fakest person that a friend of mine had ever met. And that's when we're living not in self-awareness. That's when we're living in a way in which we're not allowing, I mean, quite frankly, the Holy Spirit to control us. And then you also talk about what the childhood theme is of each number. And that's true in every Enneagram, every number has a unique childhood narrative, which is fascinating. Um, So for the threes, the childhood theme is performance and achievement. And I was absolutely a performer and an achiever. I'm assuming you were as well. Yeah, it was funny. I was with my friend recently and uh, I was talking about promoting this book. And and I said, hey, I told the uh, publisher, you know, I don't I don't want to do just a ton of stuff on Instagram. I don't like to do the whole dog and pony show. And he goes, oh, yeah, with your five podcasts (laughs) and your multiple endeavors you're doing and the fact that you've been on the stage for the 25 years I've known you. Oh, yeah, you got a real problem. And I'm going, good grief. Yeah, I guess, you know. I could grow my self-awareness a little further. Which is why I think that um, it's kind of funny that you didn't know you were three. And then the three, like what are our core values? So like the three wants to be valuable. We want to add, we want, we want to be known as someone that's valuable. But here's where I think two things here that I really, really love. So the idol, what's our idol? And every single number has an idol for us. It's, a, um, it's an idol of being successful or being perceived as being successful. And then we also have a deadly sin. And I don't think that other Enneagram authors really talk about that as much as you did. And I really like that. You talk about the deadly sin, which is deceit. Um, We spin stories to make it look like we're, you know, doing well. We have a curated public image. We avoid confession. And we usually have an an end that justifies our means. So we have an excuse for everything that we do. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yep. So here's what I love. You talk about in each chapter for each number, how we also, each number possesses an aspect of Jesus. This was what I I actually went through, literally read every single image because I was so intrigued by how you portrayed what the positives are about what we take from Jesus. And when we are living self-aware, when we're living um, in that spirit of really wanting to live our, how God created us to be, because we're made in his image, we bear this of him. And so for the three you described Jesus as the true achiever. He was ambitious. He was a visionary. He was a compelling communicator. He avoided deceit. He was truthful. He had goals and he even had a bad reputation. 
which oftentimes does exist with a three. I love that, Jesse. I love how you really broke it down to make it relatable so that I think sometimes when we discover the Enneagram, we're so in shock that there's something that describes us so perfectly and we're embarrassed because we're like, somebody was reading my my internal thoughts. And yet you drew it back here to what it says about who we are in Christ. And that is really at the end of the day, who we want to be like. Tell us a little bit about you know, what made you really want to dig in more from this angle. And then I'm going to guess that this is also kind of a part of your curriculum that you teach with Love Thy Neighbor and in the workshops. Tell us about that. And I'd like to hear how it's also affecting people because we've heard about this conversation, how it affected you, but what you teach has massive ripple effects. And so tell us how you came up with this angle and then also the effects that you see, how it's living out in people's lives. I think one of the things that troubles me in traditional Enneagram teaching is that often there's a lot of conversation about there's these nine types and each of them have a vice. And to to fix that issue, they need to practice this virtue. And that is one way to handle things. But for me as a Christian, that's actually not a, a very Christian approach to things. Tim Keller says that the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. We as Christians come from a place where we say, um, what what is the good news for me? And then what are the implications of that good news? In the course of all of my Enneagram study, I slowly just started to come across these odds and ends pieces that were really powerful for me. Um, you know, of course, Richard Rohr in his book on the Enneagram has a little section, a little chapter at the very end where he talks about the Enneagram traits in Jesus. There's another one, um, the nine faces of Jesus. Uh, there's another one, the parables in the Enneagram. I mean, there's all these really great little things where people begin to explore directly what what is the person of Jesus and his character what are the implications on us as people? And I really began to think about uh, that. And then, and then I, at the same time, was coming across. And this is kind of a, it's kind of a funny origin. But you know, Donald Miller uh, has this great company called StoryBrand, and StoryBrand helps companies, you know, brand their stuff, identify with their customers, and so forth. But his working principle is that brands need to empathize with the pain of their customers, and then showcase their authority and that if you do that you end up getting your customer to buy in and trust you. Well I began to think about that at at a much deeper level, not talking about washing detergent. What what does it mean for my soul, for me? What would it mean for me to believe that Jesus truly empathizes with not not my shallow pain, which might be true, but the stuff that haunts me. And then in what way does he affirm me so that it doesn't crush me to be who I am? But then in what ways does he also confront me because he loves me too much to leave me where I am? And, and as I sort of the convergence of those things, reading those, you know, various Catholic authors on Jesus and the Enneagram, and then coming across Donald Miller's stuff that's about marketing, it sort of all just came together. And I went, I think this is, this is what I've been looking for. I think in thinking about it too, in light of all of our stories, you know, the way that we are makes total sense in light of our story. Mm. And so what does it mean for our story to include this moment in which Jesus intervenes? 
And what I have found is that this story approach, you know, looking at our childhood, thinking about our idols, thinking about this encounter with Jesus, it fosters this moment in which I can, I can get honest about this is where I am. This is in, in honest, both directions. This is the stuff that embarrasses me, mm-hmm. but also I can get honest about this is the stuff I'm good at and the stuff I'm gifted at. Mm-hmm. And I can own both of these things without being crushed because I can trust Jesus more. He empathizes with me. He shows me a better way. Could you give us one example of someone within Love Thy Neighborhood that you've really seen this ripple effect of this conversation that you had 10 years ago and what you're being willing to become self-aware, to do the work, how it has impacted the lives of others. But can you give us an example? Yeah, I can. One of our favorite young adults, one of my favorite young adults that has come and served with us, her name's Daisy. Daisy, if you're listening, hi. So Daisy comes and serves with us. She just, she came from a world where like she was always connected. I am not kidding when I say she would live stream all of our events. I'm saying if we were teaching, she's live streaming it. If we're in a worship service, she's live streaming it. If she's at her work, she's live streaming it. She was constantly in need of stimulation and in constant need of what's next and what can make this more exciting. And she was always somewhere else. She went through this and she began to realize, oh, wait, I'm a seven. I need to deal with the fact that I tend to be escapist. And I tend to try to avoid uncomfortable things by making things more entertaining than they need to be. And so to see Daisy go through that process and ultimately, you know, she avoided a lot of the hard parts of our program. Daisy went on to become this really wonderful, like urban missionary. She befriended this single mom who was eight and a half months pregnant and had no friends. And like Daisy became the person that entered into that pain with that mom. And they went on to become friends for the years that followed and began to do life together. Mm -hmm. And this mom was brought into this bigger community and Daisy was the conduit that led to that. Mm -hmm. But it was Daisy coming to terms with, I I can't avoid hard things and I can't just numb my pain every time that it comes up. I've got to deal with these things. And so now actually Daisy has moved and she's actually joined a church plant and she's continuing, you know, to try to step forward into really being thoughtful and proactive with her life. Are you still in community with the men that were in the group that you had from 10 years ago? Yeah, one one of them in particular I am. You know, the, the gentleman I talked about that I'd known for a long time um, who really kind of sat next to me, we texted today, we'll probably see each other tomorrow. So yeah, very much. Do you ever go back to those guys? Do you pay it backwards to them all these years later and thank them for that moment and the work that began in that conversation. I think that I've expressed gratitude to him for a variety of things in our friendship, but I don't know that that moment is actually one that I've ever acknowledged to him. And I don't know, I've never realized it until this moment that we've never revisited that moment. I'd be curious to know, like, how did he experience it? I'd be real curious to know, like, what was that moment for him? And and very much, yeah, to for me to be able to go back and and express my my genuine gratitude for his friendship then and in the years that have come since then. Yeah, well, I hope that you will, Jesse, because that's part of the whole reason that we're bringing these conversations to life is to do exactly what you just said, to go back and express gratitude for the people in our lives that have gifted us with this 
amazing life-changing conversation. There's no doubt that that conversation changed your life. I did just want to ask you that final question. And that is if somebody is listening today and they have a hard time stepping into reality that there is shame or there is brokenness or there is anger. What do you think the first step is for them? You were to go back to Jesse 10 years ago and kind of like have that out-of-body experience and look at Jesse and you could have a conversation with him. What would you say to him? Let me hold your hand and here's your first step. Yeah. I think you got to acknowledge it. I think you got to get honest about, I feel this. I'm ex- I'm feeling this. I'm expressing this. And then one of those, you got to express that to God. And I also think that you have to express it to the right people. I know that we live in an age where people go, well, I'll, I'll express it. I'll go online and express it. I don't think that's necessarily the place. Not for healing. You might go there and, and get people to cheer you on, but to go to a place where you're actually going to go to the depths, find somebody older to journey with you, mm. find good friends that will just be by your side and start to get honest with God. One of the things that I think about is I remember years ago, somebody saying to me, God can use who you are. He cannot use who you are not. Do not feel that you need to pretend to be something that you're not. Mm-hmm. in order to be valuable or in order to um, be liked. Be yourself. Trust in that the delight of God rests on you. There were so many nuggets I took away from my conversation with Jesse, but I'd like to focus on three main takeaways. The first one is that it's okay to be angry with God. It's not okay to stay angry with God. In that one conversation Jesse had with his group of guy friends, that was a sacred moment when he was able to open up and to share about what was happening in his heart. And it makes me wonder how many people are creating a safe space like this for themselves. A space where we can be open, honest, real about what we're dealing with, what we're going through, and how we feel and what's holding us back from living fully in accordance with who we're meant to be. Do you have that in your life? It's a group or perhaps a friend that you can pull back the curtain with and say, here's what's going on. If not, how can you create that space for yourself? Maybe in creating that space for yourself, you create it for others too. Because what's so remarkable and unique about a group like this is that every week isn't life transforming like this particular conversation was for Jesse. But when you're doing life together, when you're holding each other accountable on a regular basis, then it gives you permission to be real and to be honest when you need to be. My second takeaway is the importance of self-awareness. I am obviously a fan of the Enneagram, and I'm a big believer in digging into your own story so that you can see where there is maybe a false narrative or a broken story that needs to be rewritten. So if you're not familiar with the Enneagram, I do recommend that you pick up Jesse's book. It's available wherever you like to buy books, and I've also linked to it in the show notes. Finally, And perhaps the biggest takeaway from this conversation is the quote that Jesse shared towards the end, and I now have it hanging above my desk. 
God can use who you are, but he cannot use who you are not. My friend, in a day when we see life through the lens of a reel, a post, a story, we find ourselves wanting to be someone, something that we're not meant to be. I'm just as guilty as the next person. But God created you and me with a purpose. He created us so that we could live a full life. And if you aren't showing up in life as you, if you aren't confident in what your purpose is or how God has gifted and wired you, I invite you into a journey of self-awareness. Until next time, keep cultivating those conversations in your own life. Ask questions. Follow the promptings. Listen to what is being said, and you'll be astonished at what you learn, how you grow, and the gratitude you'll begin to hold in your own heart. 